0: speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, Church of the Redeemer. It's wonderful, wonderful to be in your stunningly beautiful sanctuary, worshiping with the saints here, my good friend and colleague, Cricket Park. And if you are a guest as I am today, I welcome you again on behalf of this wondrous congregation and to say how privileged I am to serve as the bishop of this diocese. Which means that I have the privilege of traveling every Sunday to a different church in our community to worship, and so I bring you greetings from your fellow Episcopalians from the four counties of Maryland, which are a part of our diocese, and the District of Columbia. If you are a note taking type, um, I'd invite you to take out your bulletin or a piece of paper and pen, or if you have a smartphone app. Um, in a few minutes, I am going to ask you to write something down if you're that type of person, and if not, I will simply invite you to reflect on something in the coming week, and I don't want you to miss it. The central theme, title of my sermon today is The Ultimate Paradox, The Way of the Cross as the Way of Life. Let me start by reminding us all of what paradox means by way of a story. Several years ago now, when our sons were in high school, we spent our family vacation mountain biking in Costa Rica, which was every bit as adventuresome as that sounds. It was also a lot harder than I anticipated. Nothing in my years of tooling around on paved roads had prepared me for the terrain there. Riding uphill was exhausting, but I tell you, riding downhill was terrifying. Staring down these vertical trails covered with enormous rocks and potholes, I would ride my brakes all the way down. And our tour guide, gently trying to teach me the basics of mountain biking skills, said, I know it doesn't sound logical, but the safest way to ride down a steep rocky trail is to accelerate. You need speed to carry you over the rocks safely. Intellectually, I could grasp that what he was saying made sense, but I could never get my body to believe that I wouldn't be killed if I pedaled that way going downhill. That is the nature of a paradox. It's, It's a truth that goes against something in our common sense, a statement that seems contradictory, unbelievable, even absurd, but may in fact be true. And we live with paradox daily. Our perceptions tell us that the earth is still and mostly flat. But in truth, we know that we live on a a sphere that is spinning through space. In our relationships, our instincts may tell us that the most loving thing we can do at all times is to rush in and help whenever we can. But we also know that there are some times when the most loving thing to do is to hold back and create space, allowing those we love to find their own way. I am the parent of young adult men. I know whereof I speak. Conversely, our instincts sometimes propel us to pull back when a relationship or an engagement deeper, a deeper engagement would be painful, but in fact may be exactly what's needed to bring about healing. And thinking about those extraordinary athletes that we've been privileged to watch in the Olympics of late, I once heard an athletic trainer tell a group of aspiring young athletes that if they wanted to excel in their sport, fill in any other thing that you would want to excel in, he said they would have to come up with or to experience or find a new definition of fun, one that would include demanding hours of training and sacrifice that such training demands. There's truth in paradox when what doesn't seem true on the surface in fact leads us to a deeper truth or way of being to which we aspire. Now, translating all of that into the realm of faith, the paradoxes of faith are many. They are, as the prayer book describes them, these are the mysteries of faith. The things that on the surface seem impossible or contradictory or at the very least counterintuitive, and yet we come to know them Some way as true. And surely Jesus gives us the ultimate paradox in his stark assertion that those of us who want to save our lives must lose them, and those who lose our lives for his sake and for the sake of the gospel will save them. If you allow your eyes to read again over that gospel text, he He comes across like the Buddha in his conversations with the disciples this morning, his matter-of-fact assertion that he must undergo great suffering. And after rebuking his close friend for trying to reassure him that suffering could never be his fate, he goes on to say that anyone who wants to follow him must suffer as well, deny themselves as well, take up their cross as well, which... doesn't make sense. How do you lose your life in order to save it? How does suffering lead to good? And who would want to follow someone whose good news is linked to a cross? First thing that strikes me about Jesus' words is the presupposition of suffering, an acceptance that suffering is not only a part of life, but an essential part of the spiritual path. He assumes that everybody has a cross to bear. And the only question is whether we will rail against it or choose to carry it with some modicum of grace, accepting it as our own and finding the life it brings. Now, certainly there is some suffering that is avoidable and thus should be avoided. There is nothing to be gained by needless suffering, um, cruel suffering, or what some psychiatrists would call false suffering. That is the pain we experience as a byproduct of avoiding something else. I think it was Carl Jung who once said that neurosis was always a substitute for legitimate suffering. And I think what he meant by that is that sometimes we choose one form of suffering that isn't necessary, as a way to avoid the cross that is ours to bear. Going back to that parenting example, the suffering of letting go, avoiding the suffering that comes from letting go, and so taking on a false suffering of rushing in to fill in the pain I want to fix. So how do we distinguish between the false suffering from the suffering of our own particular crosses? How indeed. One distinction might be in the fruits of our suffering, whether or not the suffering is leading anywhere or if we're spinning in place like a hamster on a treadmill. Is it suffering that makes us more of who we are or confirms our fears and keeps us small? The kind of suffering that Jesus endured and that he encourages us to embrace always has redemption of some kind on the other side. And in contrast, the pain of false suffering, while it is real pain, is pain that doesn't amount to much. There was a wise person in my life who said at a critical crossroad in my life, choose your pain, Marianne, because whatever path you choose will involve pain. The question is, which pain carries the promise of life? There's a fair amount of language in the scriptures that refer to all of this. In particular, this notion of Dying to self in order to live for Christ, or sacrificing self, as Jesus said today, in order to gain eternal life. But again, remember something that was told to me in my 20s, if you don't have a self to give, there's not much sacrifice involved. (laughs) It's important to remember, actually, that if we rush in too quickly, to the part of faith that involves sacrifice without knowing who we are and what we have to offer, then we're simply avoiding hard work of becoming a self in the first place, So all of those disclaimers or caveats in place, firmly in place. Let's move in now to eventually and perhaps um, the hardest um, measurement of all. Um, the sacrifice of self required on a cross that is ours to bear because we have no choice. This is, I think, the, um, the most significant point or point of reckoning to come to when crosses are thrust upon us And the only question left is how we will respond to them. Joan Chittister, Benedictine, once wrote that the will of God for us is what remains of a situation after we try without stint and pray without ceasing to change it. After that. Still we have our cross. And typically they ask us to let go of something something that we loved, or hoped for, or worked toward. And to let that go for the sake of something else, a greater love, or because our life requires it, even though we wished for something else. And it hurts. It hurts as much as tearing out our heart would hurt. But the, the paradox Hear me now. The mystery of this is that in the bearing of a cross, when it's ours and we know that it's ours, and in denying and even sacrificing a part of ourselves, God gives us more of ourselves in return. Selves grounded in the love of Christ for us and through us. And I I don't know exactly how this works, I only know that it does. And the key, one of the keys, is to accept the cross for what it is, the hardest possible thing that's being asked of us right now, and then to embrace it as our destiny, even if we didn't choose it and would have run as far away from it as we could. Because in that acceptance, we join our will and our heart to God and freely choose what otherwise has been thrust upon us. We move then from being victims of our fate to active agents of our own transformation or the transformation of some part of our world. And we make room for Christ, room that he occupies within us with his characteristic love and humility, helping us to become even more of the self we were created to be even as we're being stripped away of parts of ourselves that we lose to hate. We hate to lose, right? Um, and, and obviously, Lent is a particularly compelling time to think about these things. And so I simply ask you, this is the note-taking part, either actual or in your own mind, if, as I've been speaking, if, what has occurred to you in your own life, if anything at all? And if there is something that is yours to accept and yours to claim, yours to take up, uh, not merely as your cross now, but also as your vocation, your destiny through which God's grace may flow. And I also ask you to think about people in our society or in the world whom you admire for doing precisely this who have accepted the place of their suffering or challenge or struggle and embraced it as their own. And through that embrace, chosen to be a part of Christ's redemption in the world. You know, I have been um, traveling with survivors of gun violence um, since I first became bishop, because it was in my first month of bishop that the Sandy Hook massacres took place. And so from the very beginning of my episcopate, in one form or another, I have been in a relationship with people who have survived um, gun violence, either in the kinds of shootings in schools or other kinds. And one of the most um, salient uh, characteristics of the people I've been privileged to meet is this compelling sense of vocation that has emerged from their experience. That they want to be part of a movement that prevents these things from happening in our society. And um, and they don't know exactly how to go about doing it, and they don't all agree on what they come to as a response, but they share that compelling sense of, I'm not going to allow what happened to me to define me by what happened to me, but what I did in response. And I, I, you know, it was, if you listen to the radio, um, the students in Parkland, Florida right now, they, they, within hours of their experience, decided that they wanted not to be the latest or the most recent school that had a shooting, but the last school. And they wanted to put their efforts into that movement and whether or not they succeed, they are now in concert with this growing group of people for whom that particular experience has galvanized them in a particular way. And, um, and it's inspiring to behold and to align ourselves with. And even as I gave that example, you could think of a dozen more from other areas of our society or in your own life where people have chosen to embrace what has been thrust upon them and made of that their vocation. I'd like to bring this home by uh, sharing something I came across, a, a little-known little known piece that Martin Luther King wrote early in his ministry uh, when he was in his early 30s. And uh, the Christian century had asked him to contribute to a series of articles that they were calling Suffering and Faith. This was written in the 1960s, so... To orient you, this would have been after the Montgomery bus boycotts, but three years before the March on Washington and the Birmingham uh, movement, I and mean, it was all in those early years. And he wrote this article, and the editors wrote him back and said, um, could you add a little bit more? Because you didn't, add, you didn't say anything about how this was affecting you personally, and we'd, we'd love to know if you'd be willing to share what, what it's like for you. So he... He wrote back, he hesitated, say so he didn't like to usually write about that, but he wrote something which never made it into the article. And they added it as a, like an addendum a month later. This is what he said. Due to my involvement in the struggle for the freedom of my people, I have known very few quiet days in the last few years. I've been arrested five times, and in 1960 put in the Alabama jail system. My home has been bombed twice, A day seldom passes that my family and I are not the recipients of death threats. Young father in his 30s. I've been the victim of a near fatal stabbing. So in a real sense, I've been battered by the storms of persecution. I must admit that at times I have felt I could no longer bear such a heavy burden and have been tempted to retreat to a more quiet and serene life. You may not know this, but those invitations came to him all the time to come north and to assume a faculty position at Boston University, to travel around the country in an academic way. But every time such a temptation appeared, something came to strengthen and sustain my determination. I have learned now that the master's burden is light precisely when we take his yoke upon us. My personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make a virtue of it, if only to save myself from bitterness. And at the very end, he says, the suffering and agonizing moments through which I have passed over the last few years have also drawn me closer to God. More than ever, I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. In the Book of Common Prayer, at the end of a celebration of a marriage, there's a, there's a prayer that reads, Most gracious God, we give you thanks for your tender love in sending Jesus Christ to come among us to be born of a human mother and to make the way of the cross to be the way of life. It doesn't make sense, but it's true. So with whatever cross you are struggling to accept or to carry now, remember that Jesus is carrying it with you. And the grace of God that King spoke of is as available to us as it was to him. It's the greatest paradox of faith. But others will know something of God's grace because of the crosses that you and I, take up, and carry as our own. May God bless us and keep us and sustain us on that faithful, costly, grace-filled path. Amen.